Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the Dutch cellist, conductor and World War II resistance fighter, Frieda Bellenfanta. I'd like to acknowledge the Bunurang Bunwarang people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognize them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. We'll be discussing World War II and the Nazis at length, including discussion of anti-Semitic policies and pseudoscientific Nazi race laws. Also in connection with this time period, we'll mention deportations to concentration camps, bombings, torture and executions. This episode will also include period-typical misogyny, homophobia and internalised homophobia. It will also contain brief references to the death of a child, death from cancer, relationships with large age gaps, including one involving a teenager, abortion, threats of gun violence, suicide, forced drugging and non-explicit mentions of sex. If any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, please take care of yourself and skip this episode. I also wanted to talk about our sources a little bit. My major source for this episode was an oral history interview with Frida from 1994. The interview was conducted on behalf of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and it is available on their website, as is a transcription. The interview in total is about seven and a half hours long, so it's a wonderful detailed source on Frida's life. There are, however, some problems with it. Frida was 90 years old when she gave this interview and her mind was still very sharp, but her memory was generally a bit fuzzy. Uh, She was going a bit deaf. And so there are times when, for example, the interviewer asks her a question and she replies with an answer to a different question Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and things like that. The interview is also very non-chronological. Frida jumps around events of her life, uh, you know, just as thoughts occur to her, I suppose. And I've done my best to construct an accurate timeline of the events in her life, but I'm not fully confident that I have done that accurately. And there are also just various details throughout her story that are a bit unclear. The transcription is also a wonderful aid, but it also has its problems. The transcriber is virtually always unable to figure out what any proper nouns are, including the names of other prominent resistance fighters, members of the pre-war Dutch music scene, and so forth, meaning that such names are almost always represented just with an underline. So effectively, I've had to use both of these resources in tandem to try and figure out myself who a lot of the people that she is referring to are. So now you control F for you. No. <laughs> No, Uh, which will come up in a second. Okay. Um, But yeah, so I have filled in on a lot of those gaps. Some of them, I don't know, particularly like Dutch place names and things like that as someone who's not familiar with Dutch. So yeah, that is just an ongoing problem with this particular oral history. Mm. I think that's a frustrating thing about a lot of like more kind of museum based history work is so much of it is done by volunteers who have excellent intentions but not necessarily the professional background they need to do the work they're trying to do yeah and you end up being like well i'd rather this than no transcript but this is missing a lot this is still an incredible resource though oh absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you're like i want to know about the life of this person cool she spent seven hours telling me Mm. yeah there are also two documentaries about Frida, But I Was a Girl, the story of Frida Bellenfante from 1999, and Willem and Frida defying the Nazis from 2023 uh, with Stephen Fry. <laughs> okay. Incidentally. Both are very dependent on Frida's testimony. They both liberally use clips 
from her testimony throughout. Mm-hmm. The 2023 one kind of grays them out so they look more aesthetically pleasing, but it's all the same content. <laughs> but like, we don't want you to see that this is just like bad footage shot in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> the 2023 documentary in particular clearly has additional sources it's using as well. It includes clips of Dutch historians and it references things like German trial records, which are not accessible to me. So I have relied on it fairly heavily in places, particularly talking about the bombing of the registration office in Amsterdam. But I just wanted to note this because while I am willing to take it as being at least fairly accurate, it doesn't specify where it's getting this information from. Okay. Yeah. I also wanted to say a few words about Willem Arondius. Willem was a gay man and a fellow Dutch resistance fighter who Frida knew quite well. We did an episode on Willem in 2018 when we were briefly doing like mini episodes once a month on topics where we didn't have enough information for a full episode. So our episode on Willem is about 15 minutes long. And this reflects that the sources that I used for that, which were the only ones I could find that I felt were like kind of vaguely reliable at the time, were an encyclopedia entry from Who's Who in Gay and Lesbian Literature from Antiquity to World War II, and information about him on the websites of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and Yad Vashem, which is the most significant Israeli Holocaust Memorial Museum. In a source post I made on the internet in 2018, (laughs) I claimed that I read Frieda's oral history transcript and that he is not mentioned in it, which was a great surprise to me reading this post I'd made in 2023, having just read Frieda's transcript and actually learned quite a lot about Willem from it. I don't really know what that was about. I assume (laughs) that I did a control F and then skimmed through it when I didn't find any information about him directly because I do remember looking at it and I do remember being like, oh, it sucks that he's not in this, but he just is in it. The transcriber just doesn't know his name. So if you were just skimming through looking for Willem and Arondis, you would never have seen. Yeah. Yeah. But when you read it carefully and when you watch the video, it just definitely is him. Well, that's good that there actually is all this info about him. Yeah. So first of all, I apologize for this. Uh, (laughs) This is like... Pretty inexcusable in my opinion. (laughs) Um, I would hope that the quality of our research has frankly improved. We had only been doing this podcast for like a year at that point. But, you know, a nice reminder to not just blindly trust queer as facts (laughs) some random people on the internet. Because of this and also because of the 2023 documentary, I am going to effectively give Willem another chance and incorporate parts of his story into this episode as well. I didn't want it to be too long, so I haven't included every piece of information that was in our earlier episode but I've included a bit more than I ordinarily would have for someone who isn't the focus of the episode okay Frida was born in Amsterdam on the 10th of May 1904 the third of four children born to Ari and Georgine Belenfante she had two older sisters Dorothea who was called Dolly and Renee and a younger brother called Robert Paul Frida's father was the oldest of 10 children and her mother was the youngest of about the same amount of children. Their extended family was therefore absolutely gigantic and in Frida's words, we had too many uncles and aunts to know much about them. Frida's father was Jewish and her mother was not and although neither were strongly religiously educated, the families had nothing to do with each other. Frida and her siblings were not raised religiously. Frida asked her father about religion once and he told her that there were a lot of religions in the world and that as she grew up she could read about the various different religions that exist and decide if she wanted to follow one of them. I was very open-minded. Yeah. 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 Frida really appreciated this lack of religious imposition from her parents and never felt the need for a religion. 
Okay. Frida attended an all-girls school. It was expected that she and her siblings would do very well at school. They were expected to excel academically. And this wasn't really a problem for Frida. She found learning quite easy, but because she found it quite easy, she didn't try very hard and she would be naughty when she found the slow pace at which they were taught frustrating and boring Mm. so she was often in trouble at school despite the fact that she was very clever and a good student she felt that apart from the languages that she'd learned so she learned can we guess how many languages (laughs) sure um i reckon she speaks five languages uh she doesn't okay i reckon gone she doesn't is it more or less it's less oh okay okay i'm gonna go for three she learns three languages. She also speaks Dutch, so she speaks all right, all right, four. Okay. Yeah, so on average, we're right. Uh, this is like a very silly thing to be making a big deal guessing game out of because it's not like they're like you know exciting or unusual languages or anything. <laughs> it's like, like that. Latin and Greek. No, it's not oh, Latin. Not and even Greek. that. No, no, no. Okay, it's like English and German. Yeah, there's a okay. third one. French. There you go. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So she felt that apart from learning these languages, she wasn't taught very much of use at school. Mm-hmm. That is a bit how school is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes school does feel that way yeah Frida's father was a well-regarded concert pianist he played all of Beethoven's 32 sonatas from memory in a series of six concerts okay man all right yeah pretty wild which seems pretty impressive to me I can't do that yeah same (laughs) he also founded a federation for music teachers in Holland of which he was the director because he was this great pianist Mm. of course all of his children had to have music lessons yeah Dolly learned the violin Renee learned the piano So Frida's father suggested that she begin to learn the cello. Uh, And so she starts lessons when she's about nine or ten. I always think it's funny when there's families that are quite musical, but each kid has like their own instrument. Because it's like, if you have too many children, you get to like the ninth chart. It's like, what am I going to learn? Yeah. Well, on that note, do you want to guess what instrument her little brother learnt? The tuba. The, hmm, the bassoon. Well, apparently uh, her father could not think of another instrument, so Robert just also learned the piano. Oh, okay. (laughs) There are more than three musical instruments out there. Her father was too busy to teach them himself, but he ran a music school, and so they were taught by people at this music school. Mm -hmm. Frida's hands were actually quite small, which is a bit of an impediment to playing the cello with ease. So this was something that she had to work very hard to overcome throughout her career but she was the only one of the children who had musical talent and so she was her father's favorite which sounds like a bit of an unhealthy dynamic but good yeah. for Frida, i guess i was yeah. gonna say i feel like if you're a parent with a special talent you need to come to terms with the fact that you're gonna have to like your children who don't have it yeah yeah i don't get the sense that's the kind of man frida's father was she describes him as being sort of like a bit of a tyrant and whatnot but her relationship with him was was fairly good. Because okay. she could play the cello. Because she could play the cello. Yeah. Okay. In 1915, Frida's older sister, Dolly, died at the age of 14 from peritonitis, oh. an infection caused by her infected appendix not being removed. Frida remembered her parents coming home from the hospital and telling her, Dolly is gone. Frida's recollections of this time are a little unclear, but the children were sent away somewhere for a time after this, and her parents divorced shortly after. Mm-hmm. Frida knew as a child that there were problems between her parents and these were clearer to her when she looked back on her childhood as an adult. She didn't remember any arguing and they remained on speaking terms until her father passed away. After her parents divorced, her father moved out to a nearby apartment. The children lived with their mother and Frida and her sister took turns staying with her father for the weekend to help him out and to tidy his apartment. Cool. Not just like to spend time with him. To see your dad. 
All right, Dad. Yeah. So Time to do your own housework, man. Yeah. How much housework does Dad do during the week? Or do you just like come in on Saturday and it's just do like, all his laundry <laughs> and get out of there? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know that Robert Paul is doing any housework. I know yeah. this does seem to have been happening. Yeah. yeah did, so Robert Paul does not see the dad because Robert Paul wasn't like a useful house. <laughs> I I don't know. I they seem to still be on good terms. So yeah. I feel we should maybe we should refrain like, yeah. from talking too much smack about. Ari Belenfante. But okay. there obviously is some sexism. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. the... 1910s. 1910s. Yeah. When Frida had been about 10 years old, so in roughly 1914, Frida had learnt that her father had another son from a previous marriage whose name was Hugo, who was in his 20s, and he started to visit them sometimes at that time. This was shortly before the divorce. I don't know if it was relevant to the divorce, but... A lot was certainly happening for this family all at the same time. Yeah. After the divorce, Hugo became a source of support to Frida's mother and the two of them became a couple. Oh. Oh, okay. Okay. I guess there's nothing wrong with that, but that's pretty weird. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pretty wild. That's pretty wild. Yeah, that's definitely... I I can't pinpoint any problems, but... But that's bizarre. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I don't really know how... Ari felt about this. And yeah. also like how Frida felt about this. Like, oh, Frida, this is your brother you never knew about. Oh, actually, like, this is your dad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, He's your stepdad now. There's a lot of quick adjustments to go yeah. through. Frida is very matter-of-fact about a lot of stuff that to me seems like wild. And she's like, yeah, yeah and then this happened to me, which I guess is kind of how you get when you live through World War II. That's yeah, true. I think so. And I also think so. just like, you know, by this time it's like, 70 yeah. years ago she's yeah. just like yeah that that was crazy at the time but now it's just a mm. thing that i'm like yeah i remember that yeah. happening in 1920 her father was diagnosed with cancer <sighs> she's really going through it yep yeah <laughs> they operated and he recovered for a while but the cancer returned in about 1921 when frida was about 17 she played her first concert for the public. It was earlier than she would have liked. She didn't really feel quite ready for this, but her father wanted to play with her at her first concert oh, yeah, okay. and be able to present her to the public. Oh. So that happened. I believe it was a success. That's and nice. then he passed away in 1923. At around the time that she played this first concert, Frida made friends with a girl named Ellen Schwartz, who was a voice student at the music school that her father ran. Ellen's family had fled from Russia due to communism, but she was engaged to a Russian man who was still in Russia. She tried to return to Russia when she became an adult at 21 because she wanted to be with him, Mm -hmm. but the Dutch authorities would not allow her to go. Frida felt that this was massively unjust. She thought that if Ellen wanted to go to Russia, Ellen should be allowed to go to Russia. And so she promised Ellen that she would help her get there. That does seem right. I think that Ellen should be allowed to go home if she wants. The way that Frida did this was by saving up some money, forging a fake passport and smuggling Ellen onto a train early one morning, intimidating her sister with whom she shared a room into keeping quiet. How old is Frida right now? Like 17. She's just like a regular school kid. Just, you know, going to her little music concerts. Going just to like help. she's chatting to her friend and she's like, yeah, no worries. I'll make you a fake passport. We can sort this out. I'll <laughs> smuggle you out of the country. I can do that. Like yeah. <laughs> with what experience, Frida? <laughs> Sheer bravado. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Frida. Okay. It's pretty wild. But I, guess... I did not do that when I was 17. No, I did not do that at 17 either. On or off the record, I did not <laughs> yeah. out of the country at 17. Uh, I mean, it's a lot harder for us to smuggle people out of the country, to be fair, in yeah. Australia. You can't just get on a train here. No. Both, like, logistically and for, like, immigration has got more. Yeah. That's true. Passports are harder to forge, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it's not just a piece of paper anymore. It's got, like, a chip and stuff in it. 
The 2023 documentary describes Ellen as Frida's lover. I don't think she says anything that implies this in her oral history, although she is sometimes unclear about which of the women that she's talking about were her lovers. I guess it's worth being upfront. Like there are ones where she's like, I had sex with that woman. She was my partner. So we definitely know that Frida had relationships with women. This isn't Mm -hmm. something that people speculate about. But, like, exactly which women and when is a bit unclear at times. Ellen does get back to Russia. She gets stuck in Berlin for a bit, and Frida actually goes to Berlin to be with her while she's trying to figure out how to get from Berlin to Russia. And then Uh her fiancé comes and gets her. Okay. And they go there. Obviously, this doesn't preclude Ellen and Frida having been romantically interested in each other or being in a relationship but you know Ellen also does have a fiance Mm -hmm. and depending on exactly when this happened uh, Frida may also have been in a relationship so we'll talk about that relationship now okay when I say may have also been in a relationship I just mean for timeline reasons Um, so she was definitely in a relationship we don't know when exactly so we're going to talk about a relationship that she was definitely in now okay (laughs) Uh, but you might have noticed I've said a lot of things like when Frida was about 10 because mm-hmm. she will say things like that and then she'll give a bunch of dates that don't line up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In around 1921, Frida met the pianist and composer Henrietta Bosemans. When Frida was asked in her oral history interview who the person she felt closest to in her memory was, she said Henrietta. They had met when Frida was 16 or 17 and Henrietta was about 25. At this time, Frida's cello teacher was the respected Belgian cellist Marix Levinson, who was a widow who was about 40 years old. He had asked Frida's father to marry her, telling him that he would take Frida to Brussels where she could cook for him. Uh, and Frida very clearly had absolutely no respect for him and did not like him. Good, Frida. Good. I have Good. no respect for him either. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, like, I looked into this guy a little bit. There's, like, virtually no information about him. And it's just like, he's a very respected cellist. And I'm like, well, I know a bunch of dirt about him. <laughs> I know that he wanted a teenager to marry him so he had a live-in cook. One day after they'd had a cello lesson, they were walking the same way and Lovenson dropped into Henrietta's house. He put a package on the mantle and then went to leave, asking Frida if she was coming with him. Frida decided to stay. She'd met Henrietta before, but they weren't friends and her surprising decision to stay having just dropped into this woman's house, clearly annoyed Henrietta, who didn't know how to get rid of her. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that Frida was trying to, like, find a way to hit on Henrietta or trying to find a way to get out of walking home with her cello teacher who wanted to marry her? Neither. So Frida could tell that Henrietta was upset Uh and that something was going on, and so she stays, and when Levinson leaves, she says, why don't you tell me everything? Mm-hmm. And so Henrietta explains that Levinson had had an affair with her, that he'd been unfaithful to her, and that she thought she might be pregnant. The package on the mantle was medicine to induce an abortion. Oh, okay. Oh, it's pretty full on. This man is, is terrible. Yeah, I mean, he's a bit of a scumbag. Yeah. <laughs> you really yeah. do have dirt on him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's not on his, like, Dutch Wikipedia page. <laughs> I had to translate into English, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> So after she explained this to Frida, Henrietta said, I have a feeling like I'm on a submarine with you. I don't think of him anymore. I don't know what it is. Frida replied, well, I do because I love you and I know you're suffering. The way that Frida tells this is very much that they had this exchange that day when they just met. And I kind of went over it a few times being like, surely an amount of time passed and then you had this exchange. (laughs) But that is very much how she 
conveys it. Okay. She's like, we met, she told me all of her problems and she was like, I don't know why I feel something about you. And Frida was like, yeah, we're gay and in love. And that was yeah. it. Yeah. That is how Frida <laughs> portrays this is going down. Sometimes uh, things do go down that fast, but maybe some time passed and she just didn't tell us. Maybe some time passed, <laughs> but in any case, Frida is fully in love with Henrietta very fast. She goes home for dinner that same night that she's met this woman <laughs> and then comes back and the two begin a long-term relationship. Does Frida tell you what she thought about being queer at this time? If she'd thought about being queer before, if she had any concerns? Frida never says like when she first started to think she might be queer or anything like that. Okay. Like that just never comes up. But she does sort of repeatedly say when the interviewer kind of asks her, like, did people know about you? Did people have a problem with you? She's like, no, I never had any problem. I never cared what anyone thought. I just lived my life. I didn't keep it a secret or anything like that. If you had a problem with me, you'd get banned, basically. (laughs) Okay. Good for her. Um, Good for her. Which is good for her. I do kind of feel like I'm a little skeptical of things being quite as she presents them. She she talks about this about being half Jewish as well. She's like, I never had a problem with anti-Semitism, literally no problem at all mm-hmm. and whatnot. And like on the one hand, sure, I guess those were her experiences, but there are also times where she kind of talks about like concrete problems that she has because someone's like found out she's a lesbian and therefore rejects her and things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So she's kind of decided that she's going to have this attitude in life about it, which is like good for her. But I feel like probably the realities of her day-to-day life were like a bit more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I do wonder what the process of figuring out that she was a lesbian was like for her in the Mm -hmm. early 20th century, but it's not something that she tells us about. Yeah. I think obviously it's amazing that we have this interview with Frida, but by the time someone's 90, I feel like they've kind of made their own narrative of their life. And they're like, this is how I see my life. And these are the kind of points that I want you to understand about my life. Yeah. And they may not reflect their day-to-day experiences Mm -hmm. in their life. Henrietta wrote her second cello concerto and dedicated it to Frida. Aww. And Frida played this publicly several times. Frida was living in Harlem, a city close to the west of Amsterdam, because she had a job playing the cello in the Harlem Orchestra. When Henrietta moved to Amsterdam, sometimes Frida would stay in Amsterdam with Henrietta, and sometimes Henrietta would travel to Harlem. But she said we would stay overnight sometimes just to be together. Later, Frida moved back to Amsterdam to be with Henrietta, and they rented an apartment together. Their relationship began as a sexual relationship, but became less so over time. Henrietta also had relationships with men while they were together, which she openly told Frida about and which Frida says she wasn't jealous. Okay, cool. Well, they sound happy. like they're doing fine. Good. Henrietta was very reliant on Frida. Uh, Frida describes her as sort of like taking more than she gave in the relationship. This suited Frida fine. She felt the need to offer support and love more than the need to receive it. Okay. And this seems to reflect how all of Frida's romantic relationships would be to some extent. She recalled that she never pursued women as romantic partners, but she would meet women who needed some kind of help or needed some kind of protection and she would provide that and then that would become a romance. The older Frida got, I mean, remember, she's like 17 years old when they meet, the more her dynamic with Henrietta became like an adult with a child. Henrietta's mother was very possessive and Frida would protect her from her. So once she recalls Henrietta's mother was badgering her and being like, where's my daughter? Because Henrietta was out somewhere, you know, just like living life, nowhere secretive or anything and so she said oh she's out because she's leading a meeting and her mother's like what meeting what organization is she involved with and Frida said oh she's attending a meeting for only children of overprotective parents (laughs) so rude Henrietta is the the president of the society (laughs) so incredibly rude yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) that's very funny 
So Henrietta was a very talented musician. She was a pianist, as I've mentioned, and this influenced Frida to feel like she was not as talented and that she didn't have a lot of value as a musician in return. They would practice in their separate rooms in their apartment and Frida would hear Henrietta sitting down and practicing for like an hour and a half and then she would come in and ask Frida, well, aren't you done yet? Haven't you finished practicing? And Frida would say, no, I, I haven't finished yet. I still need to learn this piece. And she would say, well, you're never going to learn it if you still need to practice after that long. That's horrible. Yeah. That's not <laughs> yeah. a nice thing to say. It's not a nice thing to say. No. So yeah, like definitely a relationship that Frida overall felt very positively yeah. about. But also clearly a pretty intense relationship. With some flaws. Yeah, with a lot going on in it. We are going to jump ahead now to 1931. Where are we jumping from? Like 1920-something? They meet in 1921. Okay. So a decade later. Yep. Frida and Henrietta are still together. They're still living together in 1931. And around this time, Frida starts getting to know a man named Johannes Feltkamp, who she called Joe. Joe was a musician himself. He played the flute. Frida described him as the most talented flautist she ever heard in her life. Mm-hmm. She said he could play forever, but he was asocial. I mean, he didn't care about money making. He didn't care about his clothes. He didn't care how late he went to bed. He would practice until two in the morning. He was a real bohemian. Okay. So there's your little snapshot of Joe. <laughs> I'm holding him in my mind. You've created a word picture. Yeah. And so Joe came to see her one day and he told her that he really liked her and he wanted to see more of her, but he was engaged to a girl that he didn't love because his mother had set it up. Okay. And Frida told... Break up, Joe. Well, that's what Frida says. She says you should break it off if you don't love her. And so he does this. Good, good. And from this time, he rapidly becomes obsessed with Frida. He tells her that he can't live without her and that he wants to marry her. One day he came to her home with a gun. Oh, no. And he threatened to kill himself because he didn't want to live without her. So, she told him that she wasn't the type to marry and said, I don't think I can ever love a man like I can love a woman. This did not dissuade Joe. And so Frida agreed to marry him and they got married in 1931. Oh, no. no. Oh, no. Frida, that didn't have to be on you. Now, this affected her relationship with Henrietta, who felt quite possessive of Frida. And she gradually pulled away from her after Frida got married. Mm-hmm. So that's how that relationship ends. Okay. Despite all of that, Frida talks about this relationship in fairly positive terms. Well, that's, I'm glad that that worked out well enough for somehow. Her. Somehow. Yeah, I mean, it's going to work out well enough for roughly half of this paragraph. Okay. okay. Uh, but she is pretty upbeat about it, even when she's talking about how it, like, blatantly isn't good. She especially valued Joe as, like, a musical partner. So, as we've said, Frida really felt like she didn't have a lot of talent, she didn't have a lot to offer as a musician, and Joe encouraged her to take herself more seriously and encouraged her to recognize her own talent. And so she left the Harlem Orchestra and began to focus on a career as a soloist. Mm. Can't believe she like did her first successful public performance at seventeen. It went well, and she's like, "I'm just not that good a musician." Yeah, I mean, isn't yeah. that how like a lot of artists? I mean, that is yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think it's also just like if you're in the world, which she obviously is, where everyone is a talented yeah. professional musician. Yeah, your standard is so high. Yeah, I guess. she's like, "I'm just average for a successful professional musician." Yeah, yeah. exactly. Gradually, though, Joe became less and less happy in the marriage, and Frida found him impossible to communicate with. Eventually, Frida asked if he wanted a divorce, and he said he did, and Frida moved in with her mother. Frida says the divorce was amiable and that they were on friendly terms, and although they didn't stay close friends, they did correspond about music, and he would tell her if there was a concert on and send her tickets and stuff like that occasionally. Another couple that they knew were getting divorced at around the same time they did, and Joe married the wife from that couple. (laughs) Just, Just do 
swaps. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Frida does not get together with that man. Presumably, maybe they had a drink and were like, what a situation, right? But yeah. probably not. <laughs> Joe was married for another few years and then he divorced his second wife as well. And then he marries his third wife. And as far as I know, that's it for Joe. But clearly this man just needs to like get his life together. Joe <laughs> <laughs> does sound like a bit of a mess. Yeah. yeah. And like these women don't have the responsibility of fixing you. No. In 1933, the Nazis took control in Germany. In Holland, people began to fear that the Germans would invade. In artistic circles, people were discussing the Kulturkammer, the restrictions on the arts in Germany which prevented Jewish artists, including musicians, from working and forced the removal of art created by Jews from theatres, galleries, you know, cinemas, etc. And what that might mean for the Netherlands if the Netherlands were invaded. Mm-hmm. Are many of the circle Frida's mixing with just like the random people we've mentioned Jewish or is she mostly mixing in just like non-Jewish circles? Like I can't give you like a percent or anything yeah, honestly yeah. but she does know a fair amount of Jewish people okay. as will sort of will come up mm-hmm. as we go along. Cool, cool, cool. Frida said that people claimed that the Netherlands were not like Germany, that there was not the same anti-Semitism in their country that there was in Germany. Those who were sympathetic to anti-Semitic Nazi policies were not yet open about it in Holland when the Nazis were fairly early on in coming to power. Mm. I mean, that's all very well, though. If your fear is that Germany is going to invade, it's not going to matter what your people think. That's a good point. And it's also not true. Yeah, yeah. To be clear. There were demonstrations promoting the Dutch National Socialist Party and Frieda recalled that some Jews participated in these rallies, not believing that they would be targeted in Holland as Jews were in Germany. She believed, rightly, obviously we now know, mm. that these people were naive and claims that the Dutch movement was not anti-Semitic were merely trying to win legitimacy for that movement. Frieda continued while all of this was going on with life, you know, pretty much as normal for the moment. She continued her career as a cellist And she also started teaching students. During the 1930s, she was asked by a parent of one of her students to conduct a small choir of kids. She went to see the principal of the children's school and found that he had another candidate he was considering, a man who was a friend of Frieda's named Hans. The principal said that the children were quite unruly and so he thought that a man would probably be better for the job. Frieda ran into Hans after he had taken the job and he told her that he was quitting because the children were too difficult to manage. (laughs) (laughs) Shortly after, the principal called Frida and offered the job to her. That's an awkward phone call. I mean, he doesn't doesn't think it is, uh, which is a problem, but yeah. yeah. Like, he's just calling her being like, oh, my other candidate has quit. Can you? Yeah. Are you still interested? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Frida had no trouble with these children. She just found that Hans had been way too easygoing on them and she could manage (laughs) them just fine. (laughs) And so she conducted the choir. They gave some performances. They did quite well. Frida then got a call from a choir at Amsterdam University and she began to work with them as their conductor and was part of organizing a big festival that included not only this choir, but then also an orchestra that had been spontaneously put together for the event. So she conducts an orchestra for the first time. Nice. She continues working with this amateur orchestra. They put on performances and she's then approached by an agent who organized concerts. And the agent said that she really struggled to find an orchestra when they needed one and that Frida should put together a small professional orchestra and that she could then find work for them. Yeah. So Frida resolves to try. She puts together the orchestra She rents a hall. She sets a date for their first concert. Now, Frida was not aware of any other female conductor in the Netherlands at this time, and it remained unusual throughout her career. Mm -hmm. It's often said that she's the first female conductor in the Netherlands, and then later when she comes to America that she's the first female conductor there. It's always just really hard 
to prove these things. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. I don't know where that even originates, like when that first got said. And I guess the question is also like at what level? Like there's a lot yeah. of people conducting a lot of things yeah. Yeah. from amateur yeah. to like the highest end professional. So I, I think women. that the sense of like what makes her the first female conductee is her doing this like professional mm. orchestra that's, you know, selling concert tickets to the public, but she's obviously been conducting for a bit already. Yeah. So like does her conducting those children count as her being a conductor? You know, so it is very unusual for a woman mm. to conduct at this time and she has a very impressive and groundbreaking career, but I don't really know if she's the first or not. I understand yeah. conducting is still pretty male dominated. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, true. Yeah. Trying to think if I've ever seen it. Oh, yeah, the woman who conducts the Victorian State Orchestra is a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm. The That's... woman who does it is a woman. Yeah, yeah and I've seen. Yeah, she's the one who does it for the Australian Ballet when they're in mm. Melbourne. I've seen the MSO conducted by a woman. Oh, okay. I don't know if she was a guest or what, but I remember them interviewing her afterwards and being like, you know, what's it like being a female conductor? And they also asked, like, what do you do to, like, you know, practice and prepare to be a conductor? And she's like, I have to go to the gym and, like, work out my arms a lot, frankly. <laughs> yeah, that's what Nicolette, who's the Victorian State Orchestra person, I was at like a and a with her after a show once. And that's what she was like. Somebody asked her a question and she like took off her jacket and flexed and was like, this is my workout. <laughs> and we were like, yeah. damn. <laughs> it's pretty wild because like every choir or like ensemble conductor that I ever had was a woman. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, so true, so yeah. true. I mean, as with so many industries, yeah. it's mostly women until you get to the top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like, it just makes it even more egregious, right? Because yeah, yeah, the kind of like hard underfunded type of supporting choirs and orchestras for like young people and whatnot is, is my experience women. being done like overwhelmingly by women. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the lead up to this concert, a friend of hers confronted her and said, you know, like, what are you doing? You've got no training as a conductor. You know, you've already got this successful career as a cellist. You're jeopardizing your public reputation. You should not do this concert. But nevertheless, the concert went ahead and it received very positive reviews. Nice. I was briefly stressed. Yeah, I was becoming stressed about the concert. One, uh, which was quoted in the 1999 documentary, reads, Frida Belenfante has talent for conducting. Her knowledge of the scores is complete and her musicality pure and healthy. The orchestra richly deserves its place in the world of music as well as a glorious career. Nice. Good. That's just very glowing review right yeah. there. Yeah. And she recalls she like got, you know, the newspaper and she read not necessarily this review, but a review that said she'd done very well. And her friend who told her not to do it had another paper, which also had a review of her and they bumped into each other and her friend was like, oh, um, how's your paper? And Frida's like, it's very good. How's your paper? And her friend was like, it's good as well. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say she like, just cut it out and post it to the friend. <laughs> <laughs> so I think her friend did kind of be like, you know, admit that yeah. it was yeah. fine. Or I'm sorry, I doubted you. <laughs> yeah. As feared on the 10th of May, 1940, Germany invaded Holland. This was Frida's birthday and Aww. she always felt quite strange about this date afterwards for mm-hmm. the rest of her life. Fair. You would. You yeah, I would, you really would. I would just change my birthday. I think that would be fair. Yeah, I think that would be a reasonable call. Early in the morning on the 10th of May, Germany attacked Holland by both a land invasion to the east and an airborne bombing of the country's military airfields. On the 13th of May, Queen Wilhelmina and the Dutch cabinet fled to London, leaving the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, General Henry Winkleman, in charge. The Dutch armed forces were vastly outnumbered and quickly overwhelmed, and after only five days of war on the 14th of May, Winkleman surrendered. Shortly after the invasion, 
invasion, Frida's family heard that her brother and his wife had attempted suicide. Uh His wife survived for a while, but her brother died. He left a note for their mother saying, don't grieve about us because we could never have been happy in a world like that. Frida thought to herself, Bob, the world didn't change. The bad part just came too close. That's true. Over the course of 1940, a series of discriminatory policies began to be put in place regarding Holland's Jewish population. In August, Jewish ritual slaughter was outlawed. In October, all civil servants were required to sign a declaration of Aryan origin. And in November, those who were identified as Jewish by this process were fired. Jews were no longer permitted to enter hotels or restaurants or to own radios. All Jews were ordered to register with local authorities by January 1941. In February 1941, a group of roughly 400 young Jewish men were deported to Mauthausen concentration camp due to an alleged attack on German police. Further groups of similar sizes were deported over the course of the year. In late 1941, Jewish students were excluded from non-Jewish schools and Jewish workers from non-Jewish businesses. In April of 1942, Jews were forced to wear the Yellow Star in public. As 1942 went on, they were no longer allowed to own bicycles or use telephones or public transport. Deportations of Dutch Jews began in July of 1942. This was the month that Anne Frank and her family went into hiding uh, in response mm-hmm. to these deportations. So and- just to clarify, you've already talked about men being deported to concentration camps earlier than yep. this. So in response to like alleged or actual resistance, small groups of young Jewish men were deported. Mm. But in mid-1942, mass deportations of thousands of Dutch Jews to concentration camps begin okay so this is just the difference between rounding people up because they're jewish and earlier rounding people up with a flimsy excuse related to like some action against german police or something like that it's that but it's also the numbers it is it is you know at this point i believe that it is no longer deniable that they are taking these people away to murder them all Mm -hmm. yeah okay which i know is something that various jewish populations in europe sort of were reluctant to believe was going to happen mm-hmm. for quite a while. At this point, that is what's happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, Jews are rounded up in a series of raids that go on into 1943. So in the context of all of this, like from a Nazi perspective, would Frida be considered Jewish given that she only has one Jewish parent? Yeah, we should talk about this. The answer is that it's complicated. Okay. So on the 15th of September 1935, the Nazis enacted the Nuremberg Laws, which forbade marriages between Jews and Germans and declared that only Germans were eligible to be citizens of the Reich. These laws included complex pseudoscientific definitions of who counted as a Jew, and it decreed that anyone with three or four Jewish grandparents was Jewish. They were considered fully Jewish as was anyone with two Jewish grandparents if they also married a Jew or if they were like a member of the Jewish congregation or sort of Mm -hmm. a few other specific circumstances like that. And there's also stuff about like the date at which these things come into play, but we're not going to go through all of that. If someone had two Jewish grandparents, as Frida did, but didn't fulfill any of the other criteria, as Frida didn't, or if they had only one Jewish grandparent, then they were regarded as mixed. The German term is Mischling. It's deeply derogatory. We're not mm-hmm. going to continue to use it. Yeah. Those deemed to be of mixed race were also discriminated against in terms of access to marriage, higher education, some professions and things like that within Germany. Mm-hmm. These conditions were replicated in many of the countries that Germany occupied, but the treatment of this group overall was quite varied and quite arbitrary depending on where you were. Yeah. 
So, yeah, my understanding is that within the Netherlands, it was much the same as it was within Germany. And this is borne out by Frida's testimony. She talks about like having freedom of movement in a way that like her father would not have because he was regarded as fully Jewish, for example. But exactly how this developed and what it looked like in reality versus on paper and whatnot, I would assume is kind of a more complicated question that I can't fully answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, on a personal level, I know you've said that she doesn't feel the need to have a religion. Does she see herself as Jewish, I guess, on, like, a cultural level? or? Yeah. So, as I mentioned, Frida really doesn't have all that much to do with her extended family. And there isn't much Jewishness in the home, either religiously or culturally. Mm. She does mention early on in her oral history going to her paternal grandmother's house for Friday night dinner, which reads an awful lot like Shabbat dinner to me, but I don't Mm. know if it was an explicitly Jewish dinner, religiously or culturally. Certainly she mentions throughout that she is half Jewish, but I think to her it seems to more be a matter of fact reflection of that is what her heritage is. Her father was Jewish rather than this being something that she ethnically identifies with and views as like a core part of who she is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, yeah. I think it's good to talk about because I think that Frida's own conceptions of this are obviously much more important than pseudoscientific anti-Semitic Nazi rulings on who and who isn't Jewish. I guess it's kind of worth noting that the question of who is a Jew to the Jewish community is also a very complicated one. Yeah. As a patrilineal Jew, you know, to like an Orthodox community then and now, Frida would generally not be regarded as being Jewish. But sometimes in other movements, patrilineal Jews are affirmed as Jewish. And I think that if Frida had felt she was Jewish, we should regard her as such. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think that that's the case. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm certainly not going to be out here being like, yeah, it doesn't seem really Jewish. Like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's definitely Frida's call. As feared, artists in the Netherlands were required to become members of the Kulturkammer in order to continue working. Jewish artists were, of course, excluded. Frida felt that if she began to comply with Nazi demands, she would never stop. Additionally, many of her orchestra members were Jewish, so Mm -hmm. she chose instead to disband the orchestra. Okay. That's very sad. It is sad. She continued to work as a music teacher, but she did not conduct or perform until after the war with the exception of one last concert that she conducted in 1942 now to be clear this was fully illegal Mm -hmm. Uh, the orchestra consisted of both jews and non-jews this is also fully illegal and it was held in a jewish community building salvador blumgarten one of frida's students who was jewish and who survived the war and who was interviewed in the 1999 documentary describes it as an extraordinary event a final concert as free beings was this with her orchestra that she'd been working with for a while or was this just an orchestra she put together for the occasion i I don't actually know. Okay. Um, I feel like it's more the latter, mm-hmm. but I imagine there's crossover between yeah. those two yeah. hypotheticals. Yeah. Yeah. Because she was working less, she actually had more time on her hands, which is a kind of unexpected bonus of yeah, a terrible a situation, situation, I guess. Yeah. And so she joined an artist society called the Kring or the Circle, and she was able to sort of socialize and make connections with other artists there. At the Kring, Frida was approached by William Somberg, who knew her from her work. Sandberg was the curator of the Stedelijk Museum of Modern Art. Before the occupation, he had had a huge bunker dug by the sea near a town called Kastrikum to the northwest of Amsterdam. And there the museum hid works of art from the Nazis, including one of the most famous Dutch Golden Age paintings, Rembrandt's 1642 The Night Watch. Oh, I'm very glad that they hid these paintings in Bugger Bunker, and it's very good that people did that during the war, but it's stressing me out that their bunker's near the sea in Holland. It's fine. It's totally fine. They get it back. This painting is on display in Amsterdam now. You can go and look at it. And- 
and know that it has spent been in a World bunker. War II in hiding in a bunker. Sandberg and Frieda became friends, and through him she met other Resistance figures, such as the sculptor Herit van der Veen. She also brought people into the Resistance herself, such as Rudy Blumgarten, the brother of Salvador Blumgarten, her student who I mm-hmm. just mentioned. Rudy in turn brought a bunch of his own friends into the group, including a group who were called, in the English translation at least, Rat Poison, <laughs> uh, which Good was the name of the underground newspaper that they ran. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize that you were saying that this was like an existing underground group that he brought together with the resistant yeah. people Frieda was working with. Not just like a bunch of guys who called themselves <laughs> Rat Poison when they went down the pond. <laughs> <laughs> That's the group chat name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another figure in this group was Willem Arundius. Now, as I said, I'm not going to include literally all of the information from our earlier episode on Willem, but I am going to give a quick little rundown of Willem's background. I'll also note Salmberg's first name is also Willem, so I'm calling him Salmberg and Willem Arundius gets to be Willem, okay. the primary Willem of the episode. Willem as the gay or Willem? Yeah, as the gay or Willem. That's exactly <laughs> what this is. <laughs> I should also maybe note, I wasn't sure if I was meant to be saying Willem or Willem. I was wondering about that, and I um, trusted you. In the 2023 documentary, Stephen Fry definitely says with a very clear, hard v, Willem. But I noticed that a lot of the Dutch people he's speaking to seem to pronounce it more like Willem. And so I went on this internet Google search and watching videos of people say things and things. And I think the situation is that the way that the W is pronounced Mm. in Dutch varies depending on where you are. And it can be like a softer sound closer to what sounds like a W to us. I'm saying Willem because it is closer to what the actual Dutch people saying this man's name. Uh, I've heard say it it's how Mm -hmm. i've heard them say it as opposed to a copying stephen fry an englishman saying it but i acknowledge it's probably not fully correct and my apologies for that i did dutch speakers i did speak to a dutch speaker about this once and about this specifically about the vw oh okay interesting because she was she was learning english and she was like i just can't tell the difference between Mm, them like she Mm. couldn't hear the difference between the two sounds because she was like we don't distinguish yeah i know germans have the same problem yeah So Willem was born on the 22nd of August in 1894. At 17, he came out to his family as gay and he was thrown out. He never spoke to his family again. Willem spent the next decades struggling to make ends meet as a painter and as a writer. In 1932, he moved to a small town called Appledorn, where he met and fell in love with a young market gardener named Jan Tyson. Willem wrote and published a biography of the Dutch artist Matthias Maris, granting the couple some amount of financial security. They moved to Amsterdam shortly before the German invasion. The 2023 documentary records that they were literally thrown out of bed the morning of the invasion by a bomb that fell quite close to where they are. I don't really know where that information comes from i kind of struggled to think of where they would get this information i guess if you know where some bombs landed you could kind of create this story yeah yeah be like well they were very close that would have got them out of bed seems like the most likely way to have that information which means it's still kind of speculative but who knows yeah who knows i feel like a lot of the information they bring in it's like that could obviously come from trial records for example but this Mm. i was like i can't see how that would come up in that setting so yeah yeah, Yeah. i'm not sure but it's a very strong image than literally being thrown across the room by a bomb hitting next door or whatever willem became involved with the resistance publishing a pamphlet calling for resistance against the nazis Worried about what would happen to Jan if he was caught, the couple decided that Jan would return to Appledorn. 
So we have this sort of cells of the resistance that have formed through these artists associations all coming together. And at first the resistance focuses on things like encouraging artists not to comply with Nazi demands and organizing funds to support those who can no longer make a living because they've refused to cooperate with the Nazis. Frida also became involved with forging ID cards. Something um, she has experienced. With. Yeah, she feels like she can do this because <laughs> she forged a fake passport for Ellen Schwartz when she was a teenager. <laughs> It's crazy to me. I've come across several times in like looking at resistance history or the history of just like individual Jewish families hiding during the Holocaust, which I guess is also resistance, of like teens who happen to be good at art who just saved their whole families by being like, oh yeah, nah, I'm 15. I can draw that. And just copying like papers. Like multiple times I've come across particularly like the teenager in the family was like, nah, I got this. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I guess they didn't make very like specific passports in those days. Well, I guess because so much of the information on it was handwritten. Like it doesn't matter what your handwriting looks yeah, like. Yeah. As long as you know what the printed document looks like, you're good. Yeah. So it had been made mandatory to carry ID at all times. And the ID for Jewish people had a J on it, so they were identifiable if they were asked for their papers. Forgeries that were disseminated by groups like Frieda's allowed people to live under fake names if they were on a list somewhere, or if they were Jewish, to have an ID that did not have the J on it. Now, as we've said, Frieda has forged papers before. She feels like she can have a crack. (laughs) She's confident. But there are a lot of challenges in this process. Dutch IDs actually had a lot of security measures at the time. They're not printed, as you said. They don't have a chip or anything like modern passports, but they actually do of a lot of security measures so there's multiple stamps that need to be forged there's two fingerprints one on the Ah. id itself one under a seal on the photograph of the person it had the signature of a city clerk who had issued it and most difficultly they also had watermarks which were very very hard to forge so if a genuine dutch id was held up to the light you would be able to see three lions each holding a sword and wearing a crown through the paper. But obviously, at least for these early IDs, they didn't have a way to do that. So they could easily be revealed by Mm. being held up to the light, no matter how good all of the other elements of it were. I, in the year 2023, still just could not even begin to imagine how you make a watermark. Yeah. I have no idea what that process is. Fortunately, today, if it comes up, we can Google it. That's true. If it came up in the context of like this sort of situation, though, you can't Google it. You can't Google how to make a legal document. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll do it in private browser. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Me and Firefox have this. (laughs) Anyway, carry on. So they decide that they're going to start forging the watermarks, right? They have to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And the first thing they do is just try to like cut the lines out and put them between two sheets of paper. So you can see it, but it's a complete giveaway because it's just way too thick. It's like three bits of paper. Yeah, yeah. So Sandberg brought in a professional printer, Franz de Vere, and after a period of experimentation with different kinds of paper and different kind of slurries and things like that, they managed to develop a method for making the watermarks. Nice. Good. I want to briefly talk about a statement that the 2023 documentary made, which is that in a party-like atmosphere fueled by booze and amphetamines, they would stay up till dawn forging identity cards. I believe that that is exactly (laughs) how it was, to be honest. I believe this too. Frida, in her discussion of these ID cards, never mentions any amphetamines or booze. 
obviously that doesn't mean that they weren't there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was just really hoping to kind of get some more information about this. I actually saw this quote in a headline and that was one of the things that made me really determined to view this documentary. And then they just say that and then they don't elaborate on it at all. And I'm like, no, tell me about the ID <laughs> drug parties, please. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't have any more information, unfortunately. I just don't feel like booze should be what's on hand when you're doing this very fine, has to be perfect motor skills work. Yeah. I mean, I guess if they've like got all the printing stuff set up, they've done the hard part. <laughs> now it's just like faking some city clerk's signature. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you need to be a little like loosened up to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah get in the zone. <laughs> the flow state. I feel like you can't overthink it when you forge a signature. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <sighs> So Frida and Willem worked quite closely together during this process and they got to know each other quite well. 2018, Eli could not have told you this. <laughs> <laughs> That's personal development. That's personal growth. <laughs> <laughs> can they talk about just being two gays? I can tell you about this. Great. So first of all, I want to tell you that within the group, Willem was called Tiki. That's Tiki. very they cute. They called him Tiki, which is adorable. Do we know why they called him Tiki? No. Probably because okay. like eight of the men were called Willem, to be honest. Yes. That's true. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> The Dutch experience. According to Frida, Willem was very obviously gay. He was known to be so by everyone who knew him, mm-hmm. including everyone in this resistance. He was also very shy, quiet. He had no confidence in himself and he had an inferiority complex because he was gay. Aww. Nevertheless, Frida does clarify that she and Willem didn't ever speak openly about their experiences as gay people together, even though she knew he was gay and he knew she was gay. Mm -hmm. She says, I never even mentioned it. It doesn't make any difference to me. Which is like, it's great that you don't judge people on their sexuality, but like, what if you had and then you told us about it? (laughs) What if you'd had like one chat about this? Yeah. Yeah. I also want to mention that two other members of the group Short Backer and Johan Brower were also gay. I know very little about them, but given how important I feel it is to remember people like Frida and Willem, I didn't want to not even mention mm. the other two gay members of this group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you know how big a group we're talking here? I mean, it's not a defined group, so that's quite difficult to answer. Mm-hmm. When eventually a group of them are arrested, and it's not everyone who gets arrested yeah. and people have different levels of involvement, as we'll see, it's like 30 of them that go to trial. Okay. okay. So it's a pretty big group. It's a pretty sizable group, but it grows a lot over time, mm-hmm. again, as we'll see. Once Frida and Willem did talk about the danger of the resistance work that they were engaged in, she remembered that he said to her, do you think that we'll see the end of the war? And she said, I don't think so. And he said, I don't think so either. He said, do you mind? And Frida said, no, I don't. And he said, I don't either. Frida felt like they understood each other, that they both felt like you can die any day from a random accident, that they would both rather die for something that mattered. The resistance group faced the problem that no matter how good their forgeries became, all Dutch IDs had a duplicate that was held at the population registry. The forged ID cards could easily be exposed by being compared against the copy that was held there. Eventually, they decided that they had to blow the registry up and they began to formulate their plan of attack. So this was enormously complicated. Yeah. And it involved bringing in many new people to the group. Mm Mm-hmm. They decided, for example, that they were going to enter the building disguised as policemen. So one of the men already involved in the resistance 
Shord Bakker, who we've mentioned, who was gay, was a tailor and he would make the uniforms for them. They struggled to make the police hats and so Rudy asked Cornelis Rose, a policeman that he knew, to borrow his hat so they could see how it was constructed <laughs> and so they could imitate it. Hey, can I just have your hat? Like, no reason. I'll bring it back tomorrow. Like, is that just, how this went? Just go into a costume party. No big deal. <laughs> Cornelis is one of those who is arrested for this. Oh, okay. So I think he's like... Hey, can I borrow your hat so we can blow up this building? And I think Cornelis was like, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here's the hat. Off you go. Here's the hat, yeah. <laughs> a friend of Willem's, Joop Hogstetter, was a courier and he was able to get them explosives. The group were determined not to kill anyone in their attack to demonstrate that they were not like the Nazis. And so the plan was to inject the guards with a sedative if they needed to restrain them. So medics were brought into the picture because they knew how to give the injections. This is a very complicated This is such a complicated yeah. plan, yeah. Operation. They also obviously needed to gather a lot of information. They had to find someone who was willing to tell them exactly where in the building the ID cards were stored, mm. um, as well as a police officer willing to tell them if all of the police officers knew each other. Oh, if they would yeah. show up and they'd be like, well, who are you? <laughs> That's true. Frida claims that she was the one who came up with the idea to bomb the registration office. And she was involved in planning this to an extent, but she was not permitted to take part in the attack and was not fully involved in the preparations because she was a woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To a degree, this makes sense. The plan is to disguise themselves as police officers. True. But Frida felt that she could have been more involved than she was allowed to be and that this was due to misogyny. Rudy was her go-between, making sure that she was kept up to date with what was going on in their plans. They would meet at a certain point on the street and they both knew that if the other did not show up one day that they had been compromised and the other one needed to disappear. Mm -hmm. On the 12th of March 1943, they're ready. They've prepared. It's time to carry out the attack. That night they approach the building and then they hear gunshots and shouting from the Jewish quarter that's across the road from the registry. So something's going on there. The streets fill with policemen and they know they have to abandon the attempt. On the 22nd of March, they try again. Jo Pogstetter, who was waiting near the building, keeping an eye out, meets them as they're coming up and says, there are cleaners who've just gone into the building. We're going to have to call it off because that would mean that they would have to potentially hurt people mm -hmm. and they're very invested in not doing that. So they call it off. On the 27th of March, they try for a third time. There are two guards inside the building, so they go up, they knock on the door, they talk to these guards dressed as policemen, and Willem tells them that he's received a tip that there are explosives hidden upstairs, which is frankly extremely funny of him. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, there aren't now, but there will be. <laughs> so they go into the building and Willem pulls a gun. The two guards are drugged, stripped, and trussed, and two of the resistance members dress in their uniforms and take up position just in case a German patrol comes by and wants to talk to them. Mm -hmm. Four German soldiers do show up. They're held at gunpoint as well. They're sedated, but there's only enough sedative for three of them. So the fourth one is tied up without being sedated. Okay. They're carried out into the garden and the conspirators are now very aware that it's only a matter of time until these men are missed. So they're moving very quickly. They set the explosives, they light the fuse, they leave and the registry office explodes and begins to burn. Oh, good. I'm happy that I came off. I was very tense. Now, this is one of the things that the 2023 documentary told me that I don't know any more about, but apparently Willem had contacts in the fire brigade and he had told them, hey, you know, if there's, say, a massive explosion tonight, just take your time. Don't show up too fast. <laughs> <laughs> so they arrive, you know, like a cool however long later, and they find that someone 
Willem, has hung signs outside which say, danger of explosion, do not enter, as a way of delaying people going inside and putting out the fire. Despite this, only about 50% of the records were destroyed. That's still a lot of records. The rest were in sufficient condition to be restored, but the process of setting up a functioning registration office took five months. And this was a terrific morale boost to the Dutch. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if half the records are destroyed and half of them are still there, that still makes a huge difference Mm. because you can make any fake IDs you like and just be like, yeah, the other one was destroyed. That's true, actually. That's true. That kind of just invalidates the cross-tacking process, even though a bunch of records still exist. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think about that. That is, I feel uh, dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You're right. Like, I guess it stops you from if you're copy is still in there creating a paper that it's still you but is not jewish yeah Yeah, or like i've used a non-jews paper and then i've just put my photo a jewish person on that paper and then being like oh same paper different photo you've obviously lied yeah yeah but it doesn't stop you from just making up new people out of whole cloth yeah Yeah. so the nazis were of course looking for the culprits and they Mm -hmm. announced a reward of ten thousand gilder which is around seventy thousand euros today for any information that might assist with their arrest one of the men that asked for assistance with the uniforms was Peter Tynison, and he gave up Yope, who was only 21 years old mm. and who was arrested and tortured. He very understandably gave the names of the other men. On the 1st of April, Willem was arrested. Lisbeth van der Horst of the Dutch Resistance Museum says in the 2023 documentary that he told the police officer that there would be a curse on his family for seven generations for collaboration. (laughs) Um, Fair enough. Frida has her own story about Willem's comments when he was arrested. She says that the Nazi officer that arrested him said in the name of hitler we arrest you and he responded in the name of the queen of holland i'll follow you so kind of obviously asserting holland's authority yeah. a free country i don't know how either of them know this <laughs> i don't know where frida would have got this information from you know i don't know where yeah yeah but yeah. either way there is definitely an understanding that william began to sass the nazis and like did not stop <laughs> I guess, like, obviously, we probably can't know what Willem did say when he was arrested, but if the general understanding is that that's how he responded, I think we can confidently say that that must have at least been in character for him. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see that in a minute. It is possible that this is in records. Like, I don't think yeah. it's unreasonable that in a report of arresting these figures, hmm. writing down that one of them behaved disrespectfully, you know, that seems relevant. Like, they're about to put this man on trial. That's true. And yeah. whatnot. But yeah. it's the two, like, sort of conflicting. I mean, I guess you could have said both of them. Yeah, that's true. Many of the others we've mentioned were also arrested, including Rudy Blomgarten, Sherd Bakker, Johan Brower, and Cornelis Rose. Willem Sandberg was able to go into hiding, and he lived out the rest of the war in hiding and hmm. was fine. Herod van der Veen also managed to successfully go into hiding, but he tried to free the prisoners, he tried to break them out, and he was caught, arrested, and executed. Mm-hmm. On the 18th of June, 1943, the trial of Willem Arondius and his co-conspirators, 28 people in all, began. Apart from the central group, so people we've mentioned, a lot of them did not know each other and they did not know how everyone was involved. You know, it's people that they got a package off one time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stuff. yeah. Willem set the tone for the trial he acted completely fearlessly and he spoke in a very mocking tone to the judge he also took all the blame on himself saying that he was the one who had the idea and that although he had enlisted help from the others he was the one who was truly guilty Mm -hmm. the trial lasted only one day and at the end of it 12 of them including willem were sentenced to death 
Anya Rose, uh, sister of one of the conspirators, Cornelis Rose, gave a statement. She said, Arondeus was very impressive, a beautiful speech. He described the lawlessness and injustice that people were suffering and how he could not go along with that and that he did not stand alone. He was very calm, but he would address the Germans in a mocking tone of voice. I'm very intrigued by this implication that he gave some kind of speech. Mm. Uh, I would also, another thing that I would like from these trial records to learn more about. And I actually wanted to kind of pause here and draw a bit of a comparison between his behavior here and Oscar Wilde's in the trial Mm. that Oscar Wilde underwent. Now, obviously very different contexts, Yeah, but something that is again mentioned in the 2023 documentary is that Willem was a fan of Oscar Wilde, that he had read all of Oscar Wilde's works that had been translated into Dutch in the 1910s. Stephen Fry also notes that his art style is very similar to Aubrey Beardsley, who is the illustrator who did sort of illustrations of Oscar Wilde's work Mm -hmm. and things like that. So there's like quite a tentative connection there, but there is a connection and a lot of gay men, obviously have felt very connected to yeah. Oscar Wilde and sort of the way that he conducted himself when he was imprisoned because the way this story is told is kind of with him who has previously been quite insecure about being gay who's been quite shy mm-hmm. now at the end of his life becoming really unapologetic about that I just sort of wonder if there is a parallel there that he could have been conscious of as well mm-hmm. that this is something that he could have drawn strength from this is very yeah. speculative I can't <laughs> yeah. prove this at all obviously but I think there's enough there that it is sort of reasonable to speculate hmm. does Frida comment at all on that contrast because obviously we've got to be an idea from her about what his personality was like when they no. were just working together okay yeah Frida doesn't witness this yeah that's true uh and while I think, you know, she clearly knows some of what's going on, they're sort of out of each other's stories by this mm, point. Mm, yeah. As the day of their execution approached, the men who had been sentenced to death were allowed to make final requests. Willem requested a meringue pie to share with his friends. <laughs> That's nice. The group remained quite upbeat, singing songs and telling stories in their cells. A sympathetic lawyer, Lau Mazarel, was the last person to visit Willem and recalled that Willem seemed to truly have been happy. He told her, tell the world that homosexuals are not cowards, that they are no less courageous than anyone else. On the 1st of July, the group was executed. Now, as you might remember, Willem's partner, Jan, had decided to leave Amsterdam for Apple Dawn to try and be safer during the war. Mm-hmm. And after that, Willem and Jan never saw each other again. Willem left 500 guilders to Jan, and Jan later married and went on and had a family. Hmm. Tony Bauman's, a journalist involved with both the 1999 and 2023 documentaries, spoke with Jan's eldest daughter and told her that her father had lived with a man for several years when he'd been a young man. She said that she was not surprised and recounted that every year when the victims of the war were commemorated in Holland, her father became nervous, distracted, and very sad. Hmm. So obviously he didn't talk about Willem at all to his family. No, hmm. which isn't surprising yeah, given yeah. the time and and the context of their relationship. Yeah. yeah. So to go back to the night of the bombing a little bit, mm-hmm. Frida, who was not participating, obviously as we know, climbed up on a roof to try and see if she could see something as the bomb went off. Mm. She doesn't actually say if she could or not, but I would imagine that she must have. Mm. Yeah. When the men were arrested, Frida went to meet Rudy in the street as usual, and he did not show up. Mm-hmm. She knew that something was wrong and that she could not go home, and so Frida went into hiding. Mm. While in hiding, she heard about the arrest, trial, and execution of her friends. Salvador Blomgarten says that Rudy's death affected her enormously, but that she soldiered on, as seems to have been the way that Frida responded to 
Everything. Everything. While she was in hiding in Amsterdam, Frida lived disguised as a man. She had a false ID that identified her as such and a three-piece suit given to her by a friend that had a similar build to her. She bought the smallest hat that she could find, but still had to put a band inside (laughs) it so it would fit on her head. Uh, She went and got her hair cut in a masculine style and she got used to speaking in a lower register and found that she had no trouble passing as a man. Okay. She lived down the street from her mother and when they passed each other in the street, her mother did not recognize her. That's that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you hear these stories and it always just kind of blows me away a little bit that people are like, yeah, I just put on men's clothes and that was was it. Yeah, like same. That's not, yeah, that's that's not how that, yeah. So do we know what her mother, like, thought had happened to her or thought where she was at that time or no idea no actually i don't Mm. she also recalls that she bumped into her husband's second wife on the street like physically bumped into her and she had gone to school with this woman like she knew this Mm -hmm. woman and she didn't recognize her either i guess you know when you think about it if you see someone out of the context you're used to seeing them in sometimes you don't recognize the person i say as a person who cannot recognize people yeah so if you're fully not expecting it to be you know that's Frida in disguise as a man. Like, you never think you would say that on the street. Like, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Obviously, it worked for her. I wanted to briefly explore the possibility that this might have meant something to Frida beyond just being a convenient disguise. Mm. So it seems that Frida already had the suit and the ID before Rudy was arrested. Although, as with many timeline questions, this isn't 100% clear. Yeah. And also, it could have been a convenient disguise before this moment as well. Yeah. Mm. Or she just could have to... been preparing. Yeah. She does say that when the Gestapo searched her apartment, they found pictures of her disguised as a man. And there are other quite fleeting references to gender in Frida's oral history. Yeah. Speaking of the birth of her brother, Frida said, The fourth child, fortunately for my mother, was a boy. She'd hoped for a boy when I was coming, but it didn't work out. I have a lot of qualities that could have been a boy, but I was a girl. She also recalls a time when the resistance members have a conversation about whether you could tell someone's gender from their handwriting and they all put a handwriting sample into a hat to test this. <laughs> I appreciate that they took a scientific approach there. Yeah. <laughs> Samba guessed that her handwriting was that of a woman and Frida was quite disappointed by that because she thought that it would look like a man's. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this isn't a lot. Obviously, I'm not trying to yeah. make an argument that Frida was trans on the basis of this. Frida does talk about herself as a woman in yeah. her oral history, mm-hmm. but it does does seem to be the case that she likely had a bit of a relationship with gender that I wish she yeah. would have elaborated yeah. on a mm-hmm. bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that broadly speaking, even cis queer women have a relationship with like gender and with femininity and masculinity mm. and how they relate to that. That is a little bit different than how straight women approach that. Mm. Mm. And even also like sexuality aside, as a woman in what is obviously a pretty masculine mm. environment, mm. like this mm-hmm. resistance setting where it's obviously mostly men and she's being excluded from something she wants to do because she's a woman. That's going to give her a complicated relationship with gender too. Yeah, that's true. While she's in hiding, she continued to distribute ID cards, but life continued to get more and more dangerous and she felt that she was endangering everyone she came into contact with. After three months of living in hiding, she decided to leave Holland and in late 1943, she fled to Belgium and from there she crossed into France. She'd planned to fly to England from there, but the plan was discovered and she was unable to make the flight. And so she spends a bit of time stuck in Paris until a contact of hers tells her about a way to get into Switzerland. And so she travels to Switzerland with a Jewish man involved in the resistance who she knows as Tony. 
they travel there together in February. There's all this deep snow. They take a train to the end of the line and from there they walk and they get to the border and there's a river at the border. And so they cross it by fully undressing and then carrying their clothes over their head in a little bundle. Um, <laughs> Frida, who wants dry clothes on the other side, just gets fully naked. Tony is modest and he keeps his underwear on and Frida thinks that is silly of him. <laughs> I think Frida's probably going to be much more comfortable on the continuation of the walk. I yeah. assume he just, like, let that underwear go forever after this, right? Yeah, like, I guess he probably just took the underwear off and then... One yeah. hopes. Yeah, because, like, if it's snowing... It you'd... seems like that underwear could kill you. And it's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Better no underwear than wet underwear. Yeah. So they still have quite a long walk once they've crossed into Switzerland. Like, they're just sort of in the middle of nowhere. And it's eight or nine o'clock at night before they come to a town. Now, neither of them have any money. They don't know anyone there but they go into an inn and Frida manages to get the innkeeper to let her to use the telephone. She's trying to connect with the Dutch consulate to get help, but it's quite late. No one is there. And so she's trying to get hold of someone when the border police arrive at the inn because they've been seen walking through town. They're obviously refugees and they're arrested. Frida is questioned and she's able to give sufficient references that they can, you know, contact the person and check to prove that she is a Dutch citizen. Mm -hmm. And so they accept her as a refugee. Okay. She's asked whether Tony was her husband and she replied honestly that no, he's just a friend, not understanding the importance of this question. Oh no. Tony was sent back to France and although Frida doesn't know what happened to him, she didn't believe that he survived the war. Mm -hmm. The 1999 documentary shows footage of records of those who died in Auschwitz at this point, including someone called Tony Aaron Van Prague. Frida says outright she does not know his last name. I'm unsure if he can positively be identified with this record, mm -hmm. but it at least suggests that they know who he is and he died in Auschwitz. I guess if, no, actually, I was going to say if they found out him then and sent him back to France, we might be able to trace the records. But even then matching that up to a deportation to Auschwitz seems pretty tenuous. Mm. But, you know. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe the doco just found a Tony and was like, this is an indication of what might have happened to Tony. Yeah. Frida is now a refugee in Switzerland. She's put into this huge hotel where a bunch of other refugees are living. When she first arrived at this hotel, Frida describes feeling like she was dead inside, that she would never care about music, that she would never care about anything ever again. After a couple of months, she sort of came to herself a bit and she's able to get a hold of a cello and she starts playing music again for the first time in a few years. She also gave free cello lessons to one of the other refugees, letting them practice on this cello that she's managed to obtain. While living in the hotel, Frida was given a bed in the attic with the hotel workers rather than in one of the hotel rooms with the other refugees. And she didn't really think that much of it until she learned that this was because the other women didn't want to share a room with her because her new cello student had spread the word that she was a lesbian. Oh, oh okay. Did the student know or did the student just guess about that? Uh, she thinks that she would have had like mutual acquaintances back uh, in Amsterdam, okay. but she mm -hmm. doesn't really know. Yeah. yeah. When Frida found out this is what has happened, she confronted her student, told her she would not be giving her free lessons anymore and that she'd you know, behaved terribly. And the student was quite taken aback and ashamed to be confronted in this way. Well, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't have spread yeah. rumors about your shallow teacher. I just, I just like <laughs> yeah. that she stands up for herself. Yeah. yeah. I also yeah. like that she's like, you're not using my cello. Yeah. <laughs> After you did this. So yeah, that is terrible, but I admire the way she deals yeah. with it. After the war ended, Frida was repatriated to Holland. She returned to Amsterdam and she found her apartment sealed by the Gestapo, but as she had left it inside, Frida was very frustrated and dismayed by post-war Holland. 
She said, we thought everything would be better, politically better, and nothing, nothing changed. Mm-hmm. Those who had collaborated with the Nazis had had an easier time of things during mm-hmm. the war and had an easier time rebuilding their lives than those who had not collaborated. And there was no recognition of resistance fighters and the government wasn't doing anything to help people like Samba get back on their feet. Mm-hmm. Jews who returned to the Netherlands were not warmly welcomed and they were told that they needed to pay tax on their homes for the years that they had spent in concentration camps. Oh, get out. Yeah. Frida stays in Holland for a bit. She slowly got her music career back on its feet. She got a little bit of work conducting with an amateur orchestra. She gradually found some students again, but she struggled to find any enthusiasm for this. She didn't want to build up an orchestra again because many of her musicians from before the war had been killed in concentration camps. Mm. Yeah. So struggling to find joy in her work and in her life in general in the Netherlands, Frida decided to move to America. In late 1947, she traveled to America by boat. While on the boat, Frida met a woman named Ivy Fraser, who was from the West Coast. Now, Frida and Ivy were attracted to each other, but it was quite difficult for them to find privacy on the boat. They both shared cabins with other women and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So that relationship doesn't really kind of have its fair chance to blossom on this boat. Uh, Frida does say they managed to sneak away and have sex one time. uh, (laughs) And when the boat arrived, they exchanged contact information. Well, they managed it in Titanic. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, imagine that's, that was just like this. That's a very posh boat. <laughs> yeah, it's a very posh boat. Frida first travelled to New York where she stayed with an old school friend. She felt like New York was too big. She didn't want to stay there. Mm-hmm. And she and her friend buy a car. And they drive all over the States with two suitcases and Frida's cello looking for where Frida might want to settle down. <laughs> They're just like driving into towns and being like, eh. This one looks all right. Yeah. The library's not very big. <laughs> I guess if you come to a new country and you really don't know it and you're like, I want to live in this country, but where? Like a road trip is the best answer. Mm. Yeah. Eventually, Frida came to California where Ivy lived and she moved in with her. Oh, good. <laughs> Lucky. Seems like you could have just skipped that and been like, oh, yeah, I'll go to Ivy. Mm. I wonder if she kind of knew. I wonder if she was like, we're just going on a road trip. Not anywhere in particular. Let's go that way. Let's Love go to that see way. California. Mm-hmm. I could see this time to sort of like traveling around and doing nothing being like mentally quite Mm, important to her yeah she obviously had a lot to like process yeah Yeah. but yeah not a huge shock so this is getting ahead of us a bit but frida and ivy would later move to crystal cove in orange county south of los angeles and they would buy a home there together and live there together i'm so happy for them yeah so frida was like oh i have this new girlfriend i like california i better get a job so i can (laughs) stay here and she gets a job conducting at a summer music camp And that leads to a position as a cello teacher and assistant conductor to the head of the music department at UCLA. Oh, nice. She's doing well. She is like a very well-regarded musician and conductor Mm. at this point. I probably haven't accurately conveyed that, but like people know who she is in America. Yeah. Yeah. Not like everyone, obviously, but within the music scene, she is fairly well known. Mm -hmm. Okay. Frida also did freelance work with Hollywood Studios, mm-hmm. which I think is quite cool. So are there like random movies where Frida's playing the cello in the soundtrack? I guess so, but I don't know that we know what any of them are. Uh. I don't know. While she was filling in as first cellist for an amateur orchestra, Frida met a man who knew her by reputation. As a conductor, he, he sort of came up to her and said, like, are you related to the f- famous Belle Infante who's a conductor in the Netherlands and she's like that is me and he's like why are you playing for this amateur orchestra why aren't you conducting and she's like I don't know I don't have an orchestra and he's like I'm getting you an orchestra (laughs) I've got you so this guy successfully organizes Frida an orchestra she starts conducting the orchestra nice after a while they're invited to play a show at a venue called the Redlands Bowl and it's very very successful 
Frida gets 12 curtain calls, apparently. Oh, good. That's yes. a lot of curtain calls. It is. I've never seen that happen. Neither have I. And after the concert, there's talk about forming an ensemble in Orange County. So there isn't a lot going on sort of classical music-wise in Orange County at the moment. And so Frida's able to form the Orange County Philharmonic and serve as its musical director. Frida is effectively informing this, having to build a classical music scene from the ground up. She's playing in school auditoriums in small towns and giving speeches to promote musical interest in Orange County. People are really receptive to it. There's kind of a real hunger for Mm. this gap in the music scene that hasn't yet been filled in this area. And after a few years, Frida is given a five-year contract and full say on what programs they run. Nice. Many women fall in love with Frida in America. (laughs) (laughs) Good for her. And this includes some of her adult students. This includes some married women. And Frida says, because we're in America at this point, the interview is done in America, that she won't give any details about who these women are, which is understandable, but also I want to know more. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully at some stage these women will come out and be like, I fell in love with Frida Valenfontein. They can write a little collaborative book where they all write, like, you know, a short story about how they knew her. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's my vision. Now, Frida has many more women interested in her than she is interested in in return. She's still with Ivy at this time. She is still with Ivy at this time. And this is creating something of a nuisance for her. (laughs) (laughs) Life's hard. Life is hard. She remembers sometimes that she would drive women home from like a music event or something. And they would just sit in her car in their driveway, kind of waiting for her to make a move. And she would have to think like, how can I get this woman out of my car? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so awkward. Uh... I think you've just got to, like, pretend that the heating doesn't work in your car or something like it's that. It's in California. They don't want... Okay, pretend that the aircon doesn't work in your car. No, I think you just have to, like, get out of your seat and open the door for them and be like, see you later. Yeah, you look very polite and suave then and they feel obliged to leave. Yeah, exactly. It <laughs> doesn't really solve the problem of them having a crush on her, actually. If she got out and opened a door for them, I feel like that would make it much worse, like, yeah. in the long term, but it would get her out of that situation in yeah. the moment. But then she can just repeatedly do that forever. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so Frida is still with Ivy at this time, but she does also say that she had several relationships with women in Orange County. Okay. She does not connect these two facts. I don't know if Ivy knew about this. I don't know what the situation is. Okay. I will choose to believe that Ivy knew about this and everyone was fine with it. Okay, you can do that. <laughs> I've decided that's how it was. Yeah. You don't actually just get to decide things, but that's fine. <laughs> So as I said, we don't know that much about women that she had these relationships with, but some of them she does mention are like married women whose families Frida had been close with and she was like hanging out with the husband and their kids and stuff without them knowing about the relationship, which to me is quite salacious and what she just kind of says. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's pretty wild and really not on. (laughs) Yeah. And she continued to conduct herself not like musically her behavior the same way as she had in the Netherlands, not really like telling many people openly that she was a lesbian, but not hiding it either. If a man approached her and was interested in her, she would tell him she could not love a man like a woman. Around 1960, Frida's contract ended and to her surprise, it was not renewed. Elaine M. Redfield, who was involved with charitable and cultural work in Orange County, including the Orange County Philharmonic at this time, was interviewed in the 1999 documentary and suggested that the director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic did not like the competition and had managed to squash their orchestra somehow. Frida, however, believed that she'd been let go because people knew that she was a lesbian 
I see what you mean when you're saying she's like, I never had any problem with this at all. And also this lost me my best job. Yeah. Yeah. And an entire refugee camp was gossiping about me. And yeah. yeah. And in that context, it's very possible that both those things that you've just said are true. Like that this man was like, I need to get rid of this orchestral competition. And therefore he was like, Hey guys, that's a lesbian. Yeah, that's true. It's possible. Yeah. She recalled in support of her suspicion that this was about her being Mm. gay. An instance when a friend of hers heard that her contract hadn't been renewed just after it happened and was really shocked by this and was like, I'm going to call someone, I don't know who, to ask, like, why did you do this? Why has this happened? And so Frida's there watching this friend of hers make this call. And so the woman's like, you know, why has this happened on the phone? And Frida just watches this expression of shock come over her friend's face. And her friend says, oh, I didn't know, and hangs up the call. Oh, okay. Frida believes that this woman has just been told, well, she's a lesbian. And it's like, oh, I see. Yeah. Around this time, Frida and Ivy separated. They sold their house in Crystal Cove and Frida moved to the nearby Laguna Beach. Frida continued to be involved in the music scene through conducting and teaching and by serving as a board member of the Laguna Beach Chamber Music Society. In 1987, in recognition of her contributions to the Orange County music community, the Orange County Board of Supervisors proclaimed February 19th Frida Belenfante Day. Oh, that's nice. It is nice. Yeah, Yeah, We should celebrate that, I guess. Yeah. In 1991, Frida moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where she lived with friends. She had been struggling with cancer since the 1980s, and it was from this that she passed away in her sleep on the 5th of March, 1995, at the age of 90. So we coexisted with Frida. That's true, actually, yeah. yeah. Very yeah. very briefly in my very case, briefly. at least. But... <laughs> yeah. Not long enough to be aware of that situation, no, but not any stretch long of enough to be aware of very much at all. Frida passed away less than a year after she gave her interview to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And it frankly makes me really emotional to think about how close we came to not having her story mm, in the uh, way that we have it. That's true. Um, and I was sort of reflecting as I wrote this episode on if we didn't have this, what we would know about Frida. You know, there'd still be records mm. of her. We'd still be able to piece something together about who she was from like newspaper articles and concert programs and stuff. But it would really lack a sense of who Frida was. And I think it would have especially been unlikely that we would have been able to know much at all about the women that she loved. Mm-hmm. What we know about her life stands in stark contrast to the comparably slight amount of information that we know about Willem Morondius. Mm whose memory is sort of effectively in that position. He did not survive to give his own Mm. seven-hour-long oral history interview. But at the same time, even though we do have this source about Frida, there is just so much that we don't know about Frida. As discussed, Frida felt that the efforts of resistance fighters were not particularly recognised in the Netherlands Mm. after the war. And although this had changed somewhat by the time of her death, she didn't feel, even in her old age, that her involvement in the resistance was really known. She mentioned times where she told music students of hers that she'd been involved in the resistance and then they'd gone and they'd visited prominent Holocaust museums and they always said to her, there's no mention of you there. There must have been so many people involved in the resistance, though. Surely they're not all named sure. in the museums. Yeah. Um, but there are, like, registries. And yeah, there's yeah. a lot of places where you can go and look things yeah. up like mm. that. You know, yeah, you're obviously right that, like, thankfully there are enough people who resisted the Nazis that, like, not every museum is just going to be like, here they are. But I think it kind of brought to the front for her, like, how is what I did remembered? Mm. And the conclusion she came to was like, well, probably not very much because I haven't ever really shared this story. Yeah. And it was because of this that she agreed to do the interview. She said that she'd felt for much of her life that it wasn't really important enough to bother doing, but sort of at the last minute, although obviously she didn't necessarily Mm. know that, she decided, no, actually I want this set down. Yeah. 
In the oral history interview, Frida is asked whether she knew that in the Netherlands, the leader of the bombing was remembered to be Herit van der Veen. And she said that she did not know that, that she understood that the leader was Willem Arondius. And she expresses anger that that is the way it's remembered. Because the interviewer understands that this is because Willem Arondius was known to have been a gay man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I um, guess that makes sense if, you know, somebody wanted to hold up and be like, this is the resistance fighter we should remember, and it was 1950 or whatever. Mm. Yeah. I think it's so often that, like, and you notice this when you're doing research generally about queer history or any history, that you'll find some fact and you'll be like, where did this come from? And you'll trace it back to, you know, one person pulling this information out of nowhere in 1953 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I think it does it does kind of come down to that where it only took one person one time to be like i'm a homophobe and i would rather Mm. uplift this straight person Mm, yeah to kind of create that thing yeah yeah and so people end up with this perception of history as a homophobic institution because it only takes one homophobe to erase a queer person yeah and then a lot of active work to To uncover them again Yeah. yeah 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 no that's true that's true in the case of Herit van der Veen being remembered more than Willem Arondius, this is something that Stephen Fry also talks about in the 2023 mm-hmm. documentary and sort of notes that, like, it's obviously difficult to prove that this is why Willem Arondius yeah. isn't well mentioned, but that, yeah, as you sort of say, Alice, certainly at the time when people were starting to pay more attention to these resistance fighters, it was just not a particularly great time for gay people in mm. the Netherlands or, like, mm. most places. And something that's included in that documentary is that in 1970, a group of young gay men wanted to show that gay men and lesbians had been part of the resistance and so on the national commemoration day in the netherlands they tried to lay a wreath where a bunch of other wreaths were being laid and they were arrested and the wreath was destroyed okay Mm. it may not be that harriet van der veen was originally held up out of any homophobic malice like we don't know we can definitely speculate but that obviously is just straight up homophobic erasure of history and i don't really have anywhere i'm going with this i don't really have like a point i'm narrowing in on it's just something that i was sort of reflecting on what is known what is remembered about these figures given the focus in holocaust education on remembrance Mm. and given on frida's own Mm -hmm. desire to be remembered given willem's you know not literally last words but the last words he's remembered by that he wants people to know what he did and yeah i just found that very emotional Mm. i think can be a flaw in holocaust education when you're talking about resistance but also more broadly that people really want to find examples to hold up to like this is just the everyman this is some guy but he resisted the nazis Mm. good on that man you also can stand up and do good things and so they don't want to pick someone who is like who stands out in any other way for example they want to pick someone who's just like some guy and the stories like Frida or Willem will be like, well, that's adding a complicated layer that then we have to like figure out how we talk about sexuality and so people don't talk about those figures as much. Mm. I was going to say one thing, and it's kind of on that as well, is that when you talk about Willem's, like you said, not his last words, the words that we remember him by, him being like, this shows that homosexuals aren't cowards, mm. is that there's just, there's a lot packed into that and like Mm. Alice said it is kind of a complicated layer like you don't know is that a response to things that people have said to him about being gay is that a response to how he feels about himself Mm. as a gay person like is that it's such a personal statement that I can kind of see what you're saying about why like holocaust remembrance they kind of seek out things that are more generalizable Mm. 
I, mean, I think this is also just a like not talking about the Holocaust, yeah. just a broader problem in like in museums, for example, yeah. where they won't talk about someone being queer because then suddenly it opens that can of worms. Like you said yeah. about Willem, then suddenly you've got to say, well, what was it like being queer at that time? What was it like for Willem being queer? What did Willem's internalized homophobia look like? How do we talk about internalized homophobia without sounding homophobic ourselves in a little museum label or uh, yeah. you know, a blog post or whatever it is? And not saying that therefore you shouldn't, but that is definitely the problem that people have that leads them just being like, eh, too hard. We won't talk about the gays. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Conversely, I think there's always this tendency for people to like think of historians and think of museums and think of sort of the whole history institution as not interested in thinking about the gays. And that is very much not my experience of it. I feel like there's like homophobia. There's, it's too complicated. And there's also, I'm so scared of getting it wrong that I won't say anything. Mm-hmm. Mm. And those are all three things that lead to gay people just getting not talked about. So I think that a reasonable place to leave this is by encouraging you to, all of that being said, to learn more about Willem and Frida, to go watch some of Frida's oral history interview. You don't necessarily have to put in the whole seven and a half hours, but it's divided up into parts. You can kind of get a sense for how she talks about herself and kind of her personality and so forth. If you go and watch some of that, you could go and watch one of the documentaries that I've mentioned here or... Otherwise, you could learn more about other experiences of the Holocaust and of World War II. I'll here recommend some um, specifically queer-focused resources because of the context. So the documentary Paragraph 175 is about experiences of gay men in the Holocaust. And I want to especially recommend the recent documentary El Dorado, Everything the Nazis Hate, uh, which really brings to life the interwar queer community in Berlin, which was destroyed by the Nazis and which features fellow queer history podcasters more. Morgan M. Page of One from the Vault and Ben Miller of Bad Gays. So I really do encourage you to take some time to engage with one of those resources. And otherwise, that's everything from us today. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And if you want to hear more of our episodes, you can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other podcatchers. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would really appreciate it if you'd leave us a rating out of five stars. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a uh, review there as well. We would really appreciate it if you do so. It really helps us to find new listeners. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Tumblr, Facebook, and Twitter, for now at least, as Queer as Fact, or you can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you want to support us financially, you can buy our merch on Redbubble or support us over on Patreon. And if you want to find all of those details in one convenient place, you can go to our website, queerasfact.com. We'll be back on October 15th when Irene will be telling us about the Meiji-era Japanese painter and calligrapher Okuhara Seiko. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you then. Bye.